The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Collective Whisper podcast. I am your host, Simon Kay, and it's a pleasure to have you guys here with us today. Today, we have a very exciting guest, but before we get to that guest, we'd just like to remind you, please follow us and please spread the word. We have some great guests for you for the rest of the season, and we hope you're enjoying them so far. So tell everybody. This week's guest is Mr. Fergus Farrell. Fergus Farrell is a name synonymous with triumph over adversity. Fergus, a former rugby player, carved out an impressive career representing Connacht at multiple levels, leaving an indelible mark on the province's rugby community. But his path took an unforeseen turn in 2018 when he faced a life-altering injury that shook the very foundations of his being. In a heartbreaking twist of fate, Fergus suffered a traumatic spinal injury whilst moving heavy equipment, rupturing three spinal discs, one of which leaked onto his spinal cord, threatening to severed entirely. The diagnosis left Fergus without the use of his legs and feet, and the initial prognosis of ever walking again was dishearteningly low. Yet, Fergus, fueled by an unyielding spirit, refused to accept this bleak reality. Undeterred by the overwhelming odds stacked against him, Fergus underwent surgery at the renowned National Spinal Unit in the Matter Hospital. It was a grueling journey filled with countless difficult and dark days, but after 21 days, a glimmer of hope emerged as Fergus began regaining movement in his toes. This small victory served as a catalyst, igniting a fire within him that would burn brightly throughout his arduous recovery. Fergus's unwavering determination and resilience would soon be tested on an extraordinary journey that would captivate the hearts and minds of all who heard his story. One year after his life-changing injury, on October 26, 2019, Fergus accomplished what many deemed impossible. With unwavering courage, he embarked on a 206-kilometer walk from the very site of his injury in Athenry Galway all the way to the National Rehabilitation Hospital in Dunleary. This awe-inspiring trek was not only a physical feat, but a testament to Fergus's unyielding spirit. Miraculously completing the journey, Fergus raised the staggering €70,000 for the National Rehabilitation Hospital, expressing his gratitude and giving back to the institution that played a pivotal role in his extraordinary recovery. But Fergus's journey doesn't end there. His pursuit of pushing boundaries and defying limits led him to embark on a transatlantic crossing, a daring feat to row from New York to Galway, aiming to set a new Guinness world record in June 2022. Alongside his rowing partner, Damien Brown, Fergus faced the vast expanse of the Atlantic Ocean. While their journey encountered unforeseen challenges, Fergus's strength and resilience shone through. However, adversity struck once again when Fergus was medically evacuated from the rowing vessel, Kushla McCree, leaving his partner behind. The Singapore flag tanker, Hafnia Shensen, came to their aid, but Fergus's row was cut short, altering the course of his transatlantic dreams. Despite this setback, Fergus's unwavering determination remains unshakable. He continues to inspire and uplift others as ambassador for darkness into light, shedding light on the mental health challenges that often accompany life-changing injuries. Fergus's own experience navigating the emotional and mental strains of recovery make him a powerful voice for those who may be silently battling their own inner demons. Today, we delve deep into Fergus's incredible journey, exploring the heights of his rugby career the depths of the injury and recovery, the defiance he displayed during his transformative war, and the unwavering spirit that drives him to overcome every obstacle in his path. Fergus Farrell, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great now, Simon. And yourself? I'm good. I'm good. It's great to hear an Irish voice on the line. I do interview lots of Americans and Irish and everything, but you know, when you hear your own kindred Irishman, it's great to hear the voice. Especially a county Galway accent. Can't be. <laughs> you know, for people listening all over the world, wherever you are, we're only actually like about 20 kilometers away from each other, maybe even less. But 
It's uh, he he's a Fergus is an afternoon man, and I'm from Curraghfin, a hurling and a football place. <laughs> Oh yeah, we we'll say we we'll say nothing about the football now. <laughs> we'll say no more about that. But so, Fergus, you know it's great to have you on the show, and you're doing great things. And more importantly, you have done great things. You've had a great story to tell, and you have an even better story to tell now that you've achieved so much. So right now, at the moment, you're pretty busy doing talks and stuff. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, so um, my talks are, are going exceptionally well. And it's not something that I ever thought I would, like, if you asked me uh, four years ago, five years ago, would I ever talk in front of a group? Or and I would say, what would I have to talk about, you know? Uh, but how times have changed. And and every time I'm doing a talk, and I, I, I'm getting a better response. And, and I, you know, sometimes I'm walking away from these talks feeling absolutely amazing. And um, the people that I'm talking to then... Uh, really see that when I'm doing my talks and I'm, I'm talking from the heart, you know, and uh, and I feed off that. So at the moment, my talks and my guest speaking, it's all about motivational, inspirational, and it's all from a real life story, you know, um, it's not from something I've learned in college, not something I've learned from books. It's just the life I've lived over the last four, four and a half years. And I'm telling it as honestly and as truthfully as I can. Wow. And I, you know, one word there you use, which is inspirational. I imagine from doing those and seeing the reaction and the effect it has on people, kids, adults, whoever, that that inspires you even more, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Because like when you see somebody uh, taking something from what you're saying and from what you, what's happened to you in your life, there's no, for me, there's no better reward. Do you know, so like I know I, I did a school and I won't name the name of it, but like, um, there was I did two classes and in between the two classes there was around eighty kids and uh, one kid came up to me at the end of one of the talks and after he came up to me he had, we had a little private conversation and the teacher came up to to me afterwards and said that's the guy that we wanted to take something out of this and I was here going well one person that's all that matters one person at a time uh, for me that was amazing and that's really good and I think you know like. Nowadays, people use lots of big words and stuff when it comes to, you know, a self-discovery and self kind of realization. But I think as well as the journey you, you have taken through your own injuries and the journeys you've taken across the Atlantic Ocean and all the journeys you've taken, the journey you're doing right now, going to all these schools and speaking publicly, is in itself a very cathartic kind of healing process, isn't it? You, you couldn't have had it. You couldn't say that right. More better. Um, like again, it's not something that I ever envisaged doing. But the more I do it, the more I enjoy it, and the more it's 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 it's. I suppose it's getting my story out there, which um, is helping people. I don't know. There's something therapeutic about it. Uh, the more I do it, the more I want to do it, and the more I feel good about myself. And that's a big thing about my life is is I want to feel good. I, I need to feel good about myself to 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 live uh, and to enjoy life. And I know everybody does. But I can't, I struggle when I see negativity um, because just of things I've seen and happened over the last few years. So when I see that, um, you know, you know, when I see people, like just get a, a room full of kids, adults and engage and really, really listen to what you have to say. And then you can see that they're taking something from it. Like, man, that's that's just filling me up with pride. It fills me up with uh, enthusiasm. It fills me up with just just pure and utter joy. And yeah, like, I, I, just strange how it's come all about. 
Well, I mean, you know, you don't have to be spiritual to know that to get from A to B or A to Z, wherever you're going, there's going to be obstacles along the way, but you just don't know what's coming. And as you said, that negativity, negativity sometimes can keep people down. And when we're in that kind of position where we can't overcome that and we learn how to overcome it, but we thought we couldn't do it, then the lessons you've learned now you can teach to people who haven't even reached the negativity bridge yet. So you can say, okay, maybe nothing bad has happened, but if it does, bear these things in mind. Yeah, that that's exactly it. Like, so, like that, look, I've had massive, massive ups and downs over the last four, four and a half years. Uh, more uh, than a lot of people have in a lifetime. And I mean massive ones, you know. Um, but I've learned so much from them. And, and again, I always give my talks and it's not, I'm not telling people how to live their lives. I'm not telling people, if you do this, you will be better. If you do that, you know, things will come good. What all I do is I tell them my story. I tell them my learnings. And then I ask them to say, look at it. Look at yourself. And if there's something from my story and you can adapt it to your life, do it. But just don't not take action because it's your life. Every day is a day to improve. That's the way I leave it. And if they can take something from my story, from my learnings, that's brilliant. That's amazing. And that's all I can do. I'm, I'm not a person who's going to tell people this is how you do things because we're all so different. We all have different lives. We all have different backgrounds. We have all different futures. We have all different minds. You know, so, you know, it's, it's one, one, um, what's the word to use? One suit doesn't fit all like. No, no. And. The, the the great thing about like that is it is a story and it's always unfolding. You know, let's go back a little bit and talk about that story, because, you know, when you were a young man and, you know, you, you probably played rugby from an early age. But at what age did you kind of feel like, OK, so I, I'm, you know, I'm into sports and stuff and this rugby can have I can have a career from this or I can do well in this. What age were you when you kind of wanted to progress with that further? Um, so like, I played rugby from about the age of 12 onwards, you know, down in my local club, Monavé, which isn't far away from Corofin. And, and, um, and, uh, like, I'd be honest, with you, I played it up until I was 14, 15, and then I actually left it, would you believe, for a couple of years to play soccer because I really loved my soccer. And, um, but then I came back and played the rugby again. And as I was getting older, like, I was just too big for soccer anymore, even though I really enjoyed it. So I really got into the rugby. And I'd say around the age of 17, no, I was 16. And I started making like, you know, the Connacht under 18 training squad, things like that. And then I think I was maybe just turned, no, I'd say I was still 16 when I was making the under 18 Connacht teams. And then I started playing like with the Mulevay senior team uh, and, and things like that. And then, I never realized, you know, that there was a potential of maybe, you know, doing rugby on a professional basis at this stage, um, you know, because there's so few professionals in Ireland at that time. But then I met the Irish under 18s. And then from that point onwards, um, I was going to the gym in Galway City and there would have been a lot of the Connacht players up there, like Junior Charlie and them. And, and then there, like, I was one of the few, you know, there was a handful of us who played with, with um Ireland under 18s and there was only one or two from Galway and you know they came up asking me you know am I playing with Mulevé or am I going to move into one of the bigger cities and it was really from that point onwards you know and that's when I I, I realised that there was a potential of, of playing rugby on a professional level now I didn't play 
really at a professional level as such. I got paid per game and I went to South Africa and things like that. But I never really, how to say, got fully contracted into any one place for a period of time as such. You know, so, you know, but so I, I still, I played rugby for pure and utter enjoyment. And, and um, you know, I, I, I didn't take it seriously enough. Now, if I knew what I know now, I would have. You know, I was young. I enjoyed my rugby. That's what I played rugby for. Enjoyment. I absolutely loved going out killing lads in a rugby pitch and then going in and drinking with them. I absolutely loved it. Uh, you know, that's the only thing I ever missed from rugby was actually the tackle. Yeah. <laughs> and having a, a load of pints with them and having the crack. Friendships, the whole lot. So, yeah. Yeah. For me, rugby is the best sport in the world for that. I played rugby with Corinthians when I was younger, but I only played for a year or two. But it was great. I loved it. I think I was around 12 at the time, but I loved it. But then I think through circumstance, the man that used to bring us up in the morning wasn't gone. And then you kind of stopped. The momentum stopped. And then I got involved in martial arts. But now I have like a family member of mine is a rugby referee, uh, my brother-in-law, and he's with Corinthians and he's with the juniors and that thing. So now we have some interesting talks about rugby and he's talking, you know, he's got his refereeing badges and stuff and rugby's a great sport and it does so much for a lot of people, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a massive community. You know, it's, it really, really is like, I really discovered the rugby, because I've been away from rugby for a long time um, because I was so busy with work and, and a, a new family and all those things. So I kind of moved away from rugby and um, I really, really, really found out the time of my accident, how good that rugby community was. Like the people that I would have played against coming in visiting me from all over the province. Then when I wanted to do my charity things, Connacht Rugby, um, you know, let me come out at half time to, you know, to um, announce my charity and what I was going doing and um, invite me to, to be, you know, load of different events and then he, after that then like the kind of people coming and, and, and walking on that walk across the country and I just continued and continued and continued and this, this Saturday I'm also have an award with the Connacht Rugby branch which which is very humbling so the award that I've been given is um is Unsung Hero Award you know which is a is a it's an award given to a non-rugby player at the Connacht Rugby Awards. And like only one player gets it every, uh, one person in the province gets it every year. And um, I've been, I've been chosen this year to be that, to be that person. And for me, who, who eats, loves rugby and has massive part of his life. Like I, when I heard it was being given to me, it was like, Jesus, I, 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 well, I, sw- I swelled up because I didn't, I wasn't expected. You know, genuinely I wasn't expected. So when I heard that this was being offered to me, I was like, going. What did I do for it, you know? The things that you have been doing and you have done, for you, they may be every day kind of pale into insignificance because it's an ordinary day now. But when other people are looking on, they're like, it's great what that man has done with his life and now what he's doing for other people. So you are an unsung hero, you know? Yeah, and I appreciate it. Thank, thanks for that. I, I, I do, I, I suppose I'm beginning to understand my role in things a little bit more now um, than I ever did because like that I, I begin to get um, you know comments and messages from people saying you know I inspired them to do this I inspired them to do that and I, I, and you know some that, that's why I do tell my story and that's why I do do these podcasts and that's why I do put myself out, out in front because it's those people that I want to help 
that need that inspiration or that needs that motivational and it, and it, if, if they take from me Brilliant. I know the, the accident you've probably talked about loads of times, but what I want to talk about just a little before that is tell us about like your work and the work you were doing up to the accident. And like, because you were just like an armored fella doing his work and then this crazy thing happened. So tell us about your work at that time and then you can lead up to how the accident happened. All in hindsight, I'm going to start off with this thing. I was a very, very busy food coach company. I had 32 coaches, 65 odd employees. Plus, I had started up a, a, a garage that was um, Mercedes-Benz bus and coach after sales. Um, we'd secured that uh, franchisee for, for, for the west of Ireland. So that was starting up that. And then we also had a chauffeur business up in Dublin. And I was also, uh, at the same time, I was also um, um, doing a self-build as well uh, of our new home. So... I hadn't been looking after my health. I had gone to 23 stone. I was huge. Uh, I was working every moment underneath the, the sun. I had a six-month-old son who I didn't even know because I wasn't around. Because I thought that was, well, most born alive was be a big businessman and make plenty of money. That's what, what society was telling me. You know? and I was, so, but on this given day, now, we'd lost a contract about six months before this accident happened. Not lost contract, it was actually taken away from us. And we ended up suing the company because the uh, and we won 180,000 against them, but to this day we never got that in the high court. But I was, I was under severe pressure, severe trying to keep everything going. And do you know something? I could see light at the end of the tunnel. I was working myself to the bone, but I could see light at the end of the tunnel, so I was very happy. But this given day, I was in my yard. I'm actually looking out of it here. I seen a bench. And I was in my shirt and tie because I was about to drive a coach to Belfast for one of the they were playing in our Ireland quarter final against one of the Belfast teams. And uh, I was sitting there and, and I said to the mechanic, you know something, where that metal bench is, some, one of my drivers will drive in at night and it's going to catch it and going to do an awful amount of damage to one of the coaches. And the same bench I could lift on my own when I had dirty clothes on, particularly overly heavy bench. So I picked up the bench and took a few steps with my, with, with, with my mechanic. Um, Sean Summers, and I lifted it out for me to keep my clothes clean, you know? Oh, yeah. So so your back wasn't supporting it for your, yeah, I know what you mean. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Like the worst thing you could do ever, ever do. But I, know, I took a few steps, and next thing I, just, I got an awful dart up my back, and I just dropped it. I was like going, oh, fuck, that was sore. But like, you know yourself, a man being a man, and, you know, I was just, oh, it'll be all right, and so I, I took a couple of minutes to recover, and then I said to Sean, "Come on, let's." Because now the bench was in the middle of the yard, someone's definitely going to bloody break, you know, <laughs> drive into it. Let's move it now. So I picked it up, exact same thing, out from my body. I took one step. It was like somebody pulled a trigger to my back, put a shotgun to me in the middle of my back, and pulled the trigger. I collapsed on the ground. Uh, the bench fell down on top of me. My feet were underneath me, and I was roared in pain, and I mean roared, and I couldn't understand. I, and actually, I couldn't figure out where I was, what I was, my legs. I was looking at my legs. And I couldn't identify with them. I couldn't move. It was really, really bloody scary. And then while this is all going on, then I felt this is how, this is how the feelings changed. Uh, like literally, I couldn't feel anything from my belly button down. But just on my belly button was my belt. And uh, all I could remember was I thought my, my belt was actually burning into my skin. That was the sensation I was having. So I was trying to open my belt and get that off. Eventually got that off, and I was just on fire everywhere. 
it was like somebody was pouring acid all over my lower body. It was just, whichever I found out later on, like, because I had, which I didn't know at this time, I ruptured my T9, T10, T11. That's thoracic 9, 10, 11. So that's around, you know, middle of your chest. And one of them had had leaked into my spinal cord and uh, severed my spinal cord by 90%. Explain that to me because that's something I didn't know. So inside those, there's a substance or a liquid that is corrosive, is it? So you have your, your, your spine, right? And what runs down the middle of your spine is your spinal cord. And your spinal cord is like where all your nerves go from your brain all the way down to your body, through your body. And inside that, that's protected them kind of like by a, a jelly. It's like, it's just like, it's like cord. It's like, like a, um, you know, electric wire. Yeah. Exact same thing process. But what you have is you have your three discs, which are, are um, and when they are ruptured, usually rupture out the way from your spinal cord. But because my three ruptured, one of them ruptured in the way into the spinal column and then leaked into it. And what's the, what the colors in the, Medical term, which again, I, I knew nothing about any of this until I've seen it happened to me. But literally, the, the, the collar pinched, so the pinch, oh, yeah, so and but that's basically the fluid from the ruptured disc going into the spinal cord. Oh, wow, that's what it is. And ultimately, then the big thing was, I had to now again, this is all I found out this all after the operation or just prior to the operation to have any, um. Basically, take pressure off the spinal cord. I had to have an operation within 12 hours. So I was rushed. When they found out what happened, which was like four or five hours later after after the you know the accident here in the yard, oh, the alarm bell started ringing. They knew they couldn't do it in Dublin, Galway, so I had to be rushed up to Dublin to get the operation done. So you were in the yard. Someone called an ambulance. And did you go to University College Hospital or where? Yeah, yeah. So again, all I want to say is like the medical team start to finish were just immense amazing because again when i got out here so um when i got up when, when i was here and the ambulance was called my wife came out to the yard and she kind of could control, control the things because she's a midwife herself and um like i was roaring in pain it was like constantly like somebody was just pouring acid all over my body that didn't change even that, even after my operation i mean up to my eyes and, and morphine and whatever else that burn sensation took a long long time to go away um so I did but and I was so yeah so I was rushed into the, the, the ambulance came out they looked after me and they started giving me some painkillers and whatnot none of it absolutely none of it worked um got into into the hospital and um I never forget the paramedic um I'm gonna forget his name I have forgotten his name um I think Paul I think yeah Paul um he was amazing because on the way into the hospital I was here like I knew this was serious like like you know this is not a quick fix. I knew it was serious. No, I never realized it was so serious. Um, and I was here going, yeah. I was here asking him, what's the story? He said, mate, look at Usually when somebody's called out about a back injury or no movement, by the time we arrive, they've moved our feelings. It's very rare that we come on something and nothing still. And it's even rarer that when we get you into the hospital and you're getting into the hospital, still nothing. And I mean, I was just roaring in pain. Uh, so he got me in there and he kept huge pressure on the you know, A&E team to get looked at me as quickly as possible. And uh, so eventually they did. And when they get, got the MRI done, which again was one of the most painful things I ever had to do. Because you know MRI, you have to stay inside that machine for half an hour, 45 minutes. For me to stay in that machine, trying to stay still, 
and rinse with the pain was again something that I'll always live with, you know. Um, but as the MRI was done, and uh, the uh, next thing the alarm bell started ringing, to seeing what the problem was. Doctor Cullen, the consultant, came and started explaining to me what was going on, and that look, they're going to have to ring Dublin. So they rang Boher Hospital, uh, Beaumont Hospital first, and then they rang the matter, the matters, and National Spinal Unit. Matters didn't have a, have a bed, a room for me. Uh, Bowman did, but Bowman then wanted them to do a few more tests on me before they got me up. So they, they rang the air ambulance to come down for me. Uh, the air ambulance came down for me, but by the time everything happened, the Mar Hospital rang back to say, "Oh, we can take you." But at this, but at this stage, it was getting late in the evening. It was getting dark, and the air ambulance that, that was called was the army one, who can't fly at night. Oh Jesus Christ! So you were stranded. Well, I was blew this up to uh, the matter, but I can tell you this much: it was torture because I felt, even though I was on a motorway, I felt every little grain on that bloody motorway all the way up. So I did. Yeah, uh, yeah. So look, it was a. I'll never forget the pain. I can never describe it, and like I, I can tolerate pain. You know, I can. I genuinely can. Man, that was. Oh yeah. Like look, I, I'm still in 24 seven nerve pain. Like, I have a lot of medication for that. So, um, but it's a small price to pay, you know. I'm, I'm still a very lucky man, you know. So, you know, you, you were in the yard and you all that whole process then, like you went up in the ambulance to Dublin and everything. So when you were up there then, was it a case that they didn't want to tell you the truth or they were holding back information and hoping for the best? Or how were they dealing with, like, talking to you about it? Were they? No, no, they were... They were very straight with it, very straight. Um, so basically after the operation, you know, I, I just kind of paint the picture. So I, I came through and um, the minute I came through, like I felt the pain straight away. But my two legs were like on a plinth in front of me in the bed. And right when I when you look through the my two feet, like they were separated. When you look through the two feet, there was like a, a window. Now, the window was not a window out into a landscape or into a city sky. It was just a window into the reception area of the spinal unit. So I was kind of in there for a while in, and like I was here going, I was touching my legs, trying to move them, nothing. And, and make matters worse, my left arm had lost all feelings as well. Okay. So this is it. This is that after the operation, I felt worse. Um, but thankfully, that came back, and that was only because of the way I had to lie during my. Um, operation that that's that's what happened with that so i was um i was just there for a while and then the consultant came in to me and uh the sergeant you know and he started talking away to me and saying a few things now bear in mind i was very groggy wasn't so sure what he was saying to me and he was saying a lot of things to me and i was and i just remember the end of it and i just i just looked at my legs and i looked at him and i said is this the way it's going to be and he just put his hands on my shoulder and said i'm sorry you're very unlucky okay wow yeah and at that stage i uh, like I, I, I remember so clearly. He walked out of the door like a minute after saying that to me, thirty seconds after saying that to me. Fuck, I'm never going to be able to walk my daughter down the aisle. No, she was only seven years of age. And then I, I then my next thought was, fuck, uh, I'm not going to be able to play football out the back with my young lad. But then the worst thing was, I'm a six month old boy as well, and I didn't have one thought about him. And do you know why? Because I had myself worked the bone. I wasn't part of his life. No. Right, right. Which is terrible. Think about that. that how, how horrible, how terrible is that? Like? Yeah, you hadn't made that bond. Well, it's, it could come across like, oh, why didn't you think that? But I mean, the, 
The thing is, we always kind of prioritize things as they are in our lives. And, you know, like for you at that time, you had your other children and then you had your football and the things you loved. But, you know, the the truth of it is you just hadn't made that bond. So he came in later. But the great thing about life is you have a chance to change these things, you know? Yeah, exactly. So people always, I always say to them when I start my talk, would you class the 26th of October 2018 as a bad day or a good day for me? Yeah. I always get the response back to a very, very bad day. But you know something, it was one of the best days that could have ever happened to me because I've now been able, I've given, I've been given an opportunity early in my life to change things that needed to be changed. So for me, it's, it's, it's been a blessing in a weird way, but it has been because I've definitely um, learned a lot about myself and I, le- I definitely enjoy life more now. I try and make the most out of every opportunity I have. Every day is a day to improve. It's not about physical. It's not about spiritual. And here's the thing, isn't it? That, you know, when we think of spinal injuries and we see, you know, even if you don't know anybody who's gone through it, of course, the the movies and TV paint sometimes this romantic picture of, you know, the person loses their ability to walk and then they're able to recover and have an amazing life. But the hard truth of it is a lot of people don't. And in that way, you persevered. And, And whether it was a determination and look, you also probably had people around you in those rehabilitation units that could never walk again. So you must have had some dark thoughts about that happening, no? Well, so I, I'm going to just roll back a small bit. So the surgeon came back into me maybe an hour later and um, he started telling me about my stats and my chances. And uh, so the first thing he said, look, this is the stats. You have you are a grade A spinal cord injury. The stats are, if you get movement within 72 hours of the operation, you have a 5% chance of gaining some sort of strength. 5% chance if you get movement within 72 hours. Now, at that moment, I started using visualization massively. I always use visualization in my mind, in my life analyze, but I didn't realize how powerful it was until this. Yeah. I had my head was my circuit board. My toe was the switch. And... Uh, I visualize a wire going right down through my body, right down through my leg to my toe. And for the next, every, and I was awake for the next 70 plus hours because you couldn't sleep in pain. I was trying to turn on that switch with my big right toe. Don't know why I picked my big right toe. But what happened after 72 hours? Nothing. And after 72 hours, he told me I had no chance. The stats were zero for a grade A spinal cord injury. So, so for for him, he was going by the numbers. That's that that, that was the facts, and look, that's that's what they're trained to do, you know. Um, because as as you were asking me earlier on, like, did it break it simply to me or whatever? No, they came straight out with the facts. And you know something? That was the best thing, the best way to do it. Because when somebody is in that position, I believe being mommy coddled and uh, and um, gentle with the person. It only prolongs their agony. Yeah. You're pussyfooting around the issue and you're not dealing with the real thing. Yeah. And once you hear the news, you can start dealing with it. But like if that, so I heard the news early, so I could start reacting to it straight away. And that was my visualization. If I didn't realize that, I could have left that visualization for another week or two. And that was a week or two of me reducing my chances of recovery you know no I, I know i'm different than a lot of people but that's the way i see it 
okay, he t- said to you, this is how it's going to be. And, you know, you better get used to it. And, you know, but for you, was there a moment that when he told you that, that you thought, no, fuck it, I'm going to fight through this? Or was there a moment that you gave up? Yeah. So when I, after that, that moment, when I thought about my kids, um, after he told me, you know, this is even before I heard the stats, I had said to him, I said to myself, okay, um, do you know something? If I stay negative and I, I look like I'm really upset up here and I'm, you know, having a very, very tough, it's going to have a real negative effect on my family and uh, my kids down home in Athenry because they're going to be just really, really worried about me. So from that very moment, I said, right, I'm going to be the most positive, uh, greatest spinal cord injury ever. And I just, from that moment onwards, I just stayed positive, positive, positive. I started using visualization to make myself, you know, um, work harder. And I just, through it all, I was just staying positive. And the main reason I was actually doing it at that time is because I didn't want to see people. I didn't want other people to feel sorry for me. I didn't want my, my family down at the right, uh, thinking, oh, for, poor Fergus is up there and he's 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 upset and he's not in a good state. I didn't want that because they had to put do they had to do a lot they had to put up with a lot of stuff as it was. You know, they had their own worries as in terms of the would have been worried about me anyways. But if if I was in Dublin and I was uh, not in a mentally good state, that would have made them even worry more. So my thought um was just look at be positive uh, and and just go from there. But I've made that decision from the moment I, after I thought about my three kids, I made that decision. And, you know, it's quite interesting, the idea that when we put on a front, you know, to protect other people, you know, some people can say, oh, you shouldn't do this. But in, in some ways, that front can also give you more self-belief. Because if you don't allow yourself to get into the negativity, it, because you're protecting other people, you have more self-belief then, even if it's a lie. You have that self-belief so you can cling on to it and push forward. Yeah, like your, your body responds to you to what you're thinking in your mind, you know. And if, you, if you're negative and if you, do, if you don't want to try things, nothing's going to happen for you. Do you know, so that's where I'm saying is every day is a day for you to improve, for you to improve. So the key word there is you. If you don't want to do it, nobody else is going to do it for you. So you have to decide that first and foremost. And then if you want to do it, people will help you and they're there to help you. But they can't do it for you. The the words, 21 days, I always have them in my mind and not from this story. It's from the thing where people sometimes take 21 days to form a habit, you know. So in your case, the word 21 days, you were forming your own habit in this time. And it could have been a negative one. It could have been one of realization that this was the way it was going to be. But those 21 days, all the feelings you went through and everything that went through your mind, the positive and negative, on that 21st day or after the 21 days, when you did feel that movement in your feet, in your toes, was that just like jumping a mile high? Like, I'll never forget that day, that night. Uh, I... It, it was, I don't know, I, I, I can't describe it because I, I was so exhausted, number one. Number two is um, I didn't know where it was going to bring me. I didn't realize I would be, you know, four years later standing in front of people talking about my journey. So but all I know is, like, it proved to me that positive mind and wanting to fight for yourself is so fucking important you know uh, 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 and that's the key thing wanting to fight for yourself 
You know, if you don't have that, also it gave me that thing that, you know something, I am a fighter. You know, because until you're in these situations, I believe you don't fully know what you're capable of. Look, plenty of plenty of people go out there and do all these planned endeavors. That's all planned, you know. But when the shit hits the fan and you have to dig yourself out of that shit without any planning, that's when you really understand what you're capable of and how much resources you have and how much belief you have in yourself and but also about how much support you have around you of course yeah yeah and that's that's the big thing and for you were you planning a new life like what because you know that was a you know we have life-changing decisions and life-changing moments but on the flip side of it if it didn't hadn't worked out and you didn't you know push through were you planning to like you know you talk about your yard there and the buses were you planning to change your life completely because of the injury? Uh, well, I suppose uh, I wanted to just get through the recovery first and see where that brought me. Um, I had no plans, mate, because I was solely focusing on trying. I said, look, 21 days came and I moved my big right toe. But like, I moved my big right toe, but I couldn't even feel it. I thought I was hallucinating as it was half two at night. And like I had been, like I couldn't sleep. Like generally, I could not sleep. The only time I ever got to sleep was exhaustion and you might get half an hour because the pain was just too immense so like like it was just was i planning on to no i just wanted to get from the next next step to the next step to the next step to the next step so my sole focus was on little steps now little steps were huge steps but if you were thinking about them the big classes little steps you know because they were so minute so that was my focus 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 as on 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 um on on seeing where this recovery could go because at no stage was I ever told even within two weeks of walking out of NRH was I we had a meeting actually three weeks before I left NRH and they told me where they thought I could go and that was still wheelchair dependent this is three weeks before I actually walked out through the doors of NRH because they still they still didn't understand what sort of fucking person I was they didn't understand you tell me something I can't do I'm gonna fucking do it. I, you know, that's, you know, um, and I, I use that negative uh, attitude of other people to say, well, fuck you. I'm going doing this. Yeah, yeah. And that took me on as much as anything else. Yeah. And, and that's a great thing sometimes because I always like I know I don't want to um, I don't want to paraphrase or use that pun. But I know obviously uh, darkness into light is a big part of your life. But I've always in my mind, you know, when you visualize things, I always think and I say this to people that when you look at the yin and yang and you look at dark and light, they're equally as important to each other. Because if you don't have the darkness, the light doesn't show its value. And the thing is, if you can take that negative energy, that negative thoughts everyone else has and say, well, fuck it. No, I'm going to do this. And and you're going to spur me on even more. That's good. Well, it's it's you're turning a negative into a positive. So you have positive thoughts already. And these are your negative thoughts that people are trying to feed you. So what you're turning is you're turning your negative thoughts into positive thoughts. So it's a double yammy. You know what I mean? Um, so for me, it's 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 uh, people criticizing me and telling me I can't do stuff. is something I, 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 I flip and I say, no, I can do it. And do you know something? If, if I don't succeed, I've tried. But don't accuse me of not trying. Yeah, and don't tell me I can't do it because I, I make that decision. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. You know, so like throughout my whole time, like every time they were telling me I can't do this, can't do that, can't do this. 
like they put it down on paper. Like they brought my family up for meetings and said, "This is where this, this is where Ferguson go." And up to that point, like I was beating absolutely everything out the door about where I could go. You know, when I went into the NRH, they were still reading off this document saying, like, I had no movement. I was there going, and when they do the testing on me, I, I actually had movement. And, and they would be looking at me going, but you're a great a spinal cord injury. Yeah, but I've got movement. So let's let's get on to the next stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> bring, put me down on the B1 if you want, but I have movement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so uh, fuck yeah, it's... Yeah, because, I mean, they're trained to categorize things as they see them and to put you in new slots and stuff. But, you know, I'm sure every so often they see these cases where people defy the odds. And then they're probably looking and going, we really can't measure the power of the human spirit. Definitely can't. And, and, you know, like for me, uh, I never knew I had this within me. Never knew. You know, I, I always knew... I always had that thing, though, if somebody told me I couldn't do something, it would, it would stir me on to do it, you know? But I never realized, you know, that I had that much determination, thickness, um, and stubbornness to, to do what I did do. And that's why I say, like, you know, you only realize these things when the shit hits the fan. And uh, I, I'm, I'm actually very happy now because I know if shit hits the fan again, and it has hit the fan you know, um, with other things since 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 that accident, and hit a fan. I've hit the fan a few times, but I know now that with it, that I have that inside me to to recover and uh, uh, and to build myself back up and make myself mentally strong and 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 and, and, and fit. You know, uh, and that's that's a really powerful thing to to realize about yourself. One thing I'm, I'm curious about is. Because that spinal injury happened, right? And, and, you know, as you said, it was the culmination of the way you were holding the stuff, your stature, whatever you were doing. But did anyone ever say to you, you know, that could have happened because of the way yeah, you were used to work in bad posture or lifting things? Was there ever any indication that you had damaged it before that? Zero indication. There was no calcium whatsoever in the injury pre- previously. So I asked that question myself. Was there an old rugby injury after that? No, zero. Okay. And I was the first person to get it going through the doors of NRH with a thoracic injury from lifting a bench. Usually, from lifting. Usually, 100% thoracic injuries are always from falling from a height or, or a high-speed car crash. It was always a high-impact injury, thoracic. So even that alone was, was a mystery to them, you know. They didn't know how to deal with it. because. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. And and like now, you know, when it comes to lifting anything or whatever, do you just stay away or do you have you or like did you think, no, no, I'm not gonna avoid those kind of things, I'll just be safer. Yeah, clearly I'm safer, but the big thing is is it's preemptive. You know, now I'm extremely fit. I've lost a lot of weight. I'm extremely strong now. Um I have a better diet, uh, better nutrition. Um, so my body can now, even though I have massive reduced sensation from my belly button still, I have huge bowel and bladder problems still because they fully haven't come back properly. Um, I have, I don't have proprioception, so I fall over very easily. Um, I still have a lot of those issues, but the thing is, I'm actually stronger and fitter than I ever was uh, because 
I, I, I'm looking after myself and I go to the gym all the time and stuff like that. So in terms of lifting things, yeah, of course I'm, you know, I'm more cautious, but I can still lift and carry more than I ever did. Uh, I go to the gym, I do my, my squats, my deadlifts, I do all that type of stuff. Because as I say, four people in a million get a spinal cord injury, four in a million. A person to get a spinal cord injury twice would be like winning the Euro Millions here and flying over to the Atlantic and and, you're in the, and winning the American jackpot on the same day. Yeah, I know what you mean. Exactly, yeah. It's crazy. Look, obviously it could happen, but like the, the, the operation secured my spine. No, if, if I lived life like that, you know, I'd be afraid to live, lift a bag of sugar. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, that's good that you, you know your limitations, but you also have exceeded them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, but I see them. But you know yourself, like I, I just live a better, healthier life. And and again, that's one of the things that I could be. I if I didn't have this accident, I could be very much uh, six foot under after having a massive heart attack. Also, of course. So you know. So again, that's another shining light in it. You know. And then, so let's move on to your, you know, your walk from Athenry to the hospital, to the rehabilitation hospital. So was that something that while you were undergoing treatment, you said, "I'm going to do this," or was that? Did somebody give you the idea or where did that all come about? No, no. Uh, so I don't know whether you know this part about me. So when I got out of the NRH, I had the euphoria beating the prognosis of never walking again. Now, I, I, I walked out through the doors of the NRH. Now, I did stumble. Like, literally, I thought at the time I was walking, but I look back at the videos and literally I did stumble. But that didn't matter. I went out on my own two feet. But when I got back out then, my house was like, it had been the doors being widened for the wheelchair. and but. The watch call it the actual steps into my house and the wheelchair ramp hadn't been finished. So I, I've and then I really discovered, fuck, uh, yeah, I might be back on my feet, but I'm still severely disabled because I couldn't walk. Like I could only walk maybe five meters. I could, you know, without having to put my hand on something, you know, to steady myself. So I I got out at the end of April and by mid June I had fallen and I I just fell into a massive massive. Uh, level of despair like it was deep 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 depression and i never forget the day that sent me over the edge i was sitting it was a beautiful day my new house was built on my dad's farm the farmyard was right beside it i was sitting inside the new house uh my ex-wife at the time my wife at the time uh was gone into acton Roy or was gone away with the kids so i was in the house on my own and i was struggling with how how difficult things were at this time and then my dad, on this lovely day, was building a, a pillar to hang a new gate on right beside me. I wasn't, like, I was 40 years of age, a good, strong man. And there was my dad, 70-odd years of age, out doing a pillar, and I inside the house, and not even being able to get up and open the window to have a chat with him. All I could do was look out at him. And I mean, fuck, I just, I just dropped. Like, it was just, it was just, I couldn't believe him. Unfortunately, at that stage, um, you know, I I am um, I tried to commit suicide, uh, and I was saying, grace of God that a, a guard in Galway, who I played rugby with in Irish under ratings, would you believe, and Connor in Connor during the twenties, spotted me. He saved my life, and then I was admitted into hospital into a psychiatric ward for a week. And obviously, you know, I was in bits, and you had to sign yourself in. And the first day or two, I thought, you know, they're after cutting me because I. I you know, because once you're signed in, you're meant to be able to sign yourself out. But that's not really the reality. <laughs> they keep you in there until you're safe to get out. But but then it was actually then that I discovered what actually made me to at the rock bottom. No phones, no nothing. And 
it was then that I discovered what makes me tick, for a better word. Who you are. Who I was. Why did I do what I do? And I discovered challenges. Challenges keep me focused, make me, define me. Everything in my life was a challenge, but I never realized that's what I was doing until that moment. I tell you this much, it has changed how I look at things. Because when you think about, why did I get walking? Because it was a challenge. Why did I have a a business? Because it was a challenge. Why did I do X, Y, and Z? Everything was challenges, but I didn't define them as challenges. So I was here in the, 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 maybe I was day five, and I'd, I'd, that euphoria come in. That's what I, this is me. I need challenges. Why I had fell into the depths of despair is because I had the challenge of getting back on my feet. I met that challenge and I succeeded. But when I got out there in RH, I had no challenges. I just went home. No challenges to do, nothing would work. No goals. No goals, no nothing. So I was just empty mind. Empty mind and just filled me up with negativity, negativity, negativity. So I discovered that and I said to myself, I was there, that was maybe day five. And I was going, what am I going to do? What am I going to do for the next challenge? And then I came up with the, the idea myself. I said, I'm going to walk from my yard across the country to the NRH a year after my anniversary. A year, I'm going to walk in through the doors of the NRH a year after I told him I never walk. Um, or sorry, after after I told him I never walk in. And um, bear in mind, at this stage, I was walking around the courtyard within this um, psychiatric ward. And it was no bigger than 30 metres by 20 metres. And if I did maybe three laps, I'd have to sit down because uh, I was that fucked. But yeah, I took on this challenge of walk across the country, 206 kilometers. But I knew if I set that challenge, I was so confident in myself. If I set that challenge, I'd stay going and going and going until I actually could do it. And what did I do? I bloody did it. Yeah. And you know, I have I have the thing in my mind where um, because you're inspiring everyone, in a few years, there'll be like other people doing the same thing. And the, the surgeons will be like, oh, for fuck's sake, not another fucking one of you. <laughs> oh, can you go to the matter? Go to another hospital. Leave us alone. Yeah, exactly. Every- Since Fergus Farrell, now we have someone every week walking up to us, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. That was the great thing because and what was nice was as well the fact you went from your yard where it happened so it was like the reverse journey well i mean it was the same journey but you went up the first time from the yard to the hospital in a terrible condition and this time you were going up in a, in a better condition and it was kind of like a, a very cathartic because i'm sure every step you were like i'm getting closer to where i can prove to myself that i did something insurmountable yeah it was just like it was just such a rewarding experience for me but again, it was that's just the, my friends, my family, that's the rugby community. Everybody was just rode in behind it. Excuse the expression. But you know, it was just an amazing experience. And again, you really learn who who really does love you and who 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 um, stands by you and you know you know wants to help. And, and that's 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 amazing. It's like some things I'll always take away from this is like. I'll never forget the people who came up to see me in, in in Dublin while I was in hospital. You know, those are the people I always remember and always, you know, and I'll never remember the people who came on this walk with me and I'll never forget the people who sponsored and supported because they're, you know, they're the people that, that care for you and, 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 and wants the best for you, uh, no matter what condition you're in. Um, 
you know, I'll never forget that, you know, and, and whereas one time I might have been not as appreciative of things that were being done for me. Yeah. And on the whole issue of, you know, you know, people taking their own lives, because we've had, you know, Colin Farrell from Tume, who's, who has the, the, you know, stamp out suicide, and he's a big charity in the UK and stuff. And, you know, I mean, we've had even Kevin Hines on this show, who was the Golden Gate survivor. He jumped from the Golden Gate. And he always said when he jumped, he immediately regretted it. Right. And it's so when you when you did, you know, try to take your own life, was it a cry for help or was it for you? You just wanted to end it. I can't. I don't know. Right. OK. Because I don't know. Um I, and the reason I don't know is because, you know, some I could have chosen, like, I, I, like I could have chosen, like, uh, I don't know the met why I chose the method I went to choose. I, I basically I went to throw myself in the river Coral because so many people had done that already. And when I arrived into Galway City, I so I got in my car and I drove into Galway City and I parked up the car and I walked to the river Coral to throw myself in, and the river was too low. Now the reason I wanted to hire is because I can't swim. You're too tall. You're like, I'm too tall for this river. Yeah. My think was, if I throw myself in now, I might drown myself. Because it's too, you know how the river carbon gets that. Yeah, exactly, you know. So what did I do? I went down to a pub in Downing Street. I had a couple of pints. I never forget I was sitting in there in that place. And there was another table across from me, a bunch of gay friends, and they're having breakfast. And I was just down there with my head hanging. I had the two pints, and like, I was just crying. And uh, I walked out that door and I was walking back towards that bridge. And the tide was coming in. So I knew that the tide was going to be in. It was two hours later. I, I didn't drink the two pints very quickly. But as I was walking up there, that's when Joe Brady came up in the top cop car. And I mean, like, that could have been any cops and they would not have recognized me. Joe Brady. Like, that's, that to me was just, a, you know, whether I would have went all the way to the bridge and just threw myself in. I will never know. Did he like stop and say, "What are you doing?" Or did he realize? Yeah, he just he just stopped, and I seen him, and like, see, I couldn't, I, I couldn't, I, I could still just barely walk, like you know what I mean. So I couldn't run away, or I couldn't do anything. Like it wasn't like I had the power to do anything if he wants to do. It. So he just pulled over, ran across the road to me, and said, "What are you at?" Like this, and and he just kind of sheltered me into the kind of side of the. Uh, the, the building and I, I, I remember just going a big sigh came over me and I, I, I even think about it now is you know uh, I, 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 I didn't even fight him I, I just gave up I just uh, I, I really I, I just didn't know where I was I really didn't know where I was what I wanted uh, I was just uh, really really confused you were lost yeah no, that'd be the word to use. Really, really. Uh, like, even now thinking of it, I, I, I honestly don't. I just remember that big sigh. I just like, oh, fuck. I, and after failing, I try and kill myself as well. Something like, maybe, yeah. you know. If, yeah, yeah. You know, this, you know, because I see I was going through financial trouble and my marriage was in bits. Uh, physically, I was in bits. So everything was just seems to be failing for me. And I, I just had that sense even like I couldn't even do this properly, you know. So is that Do you think that he saw you and realized there was something wrong or he just was kind of coming to say hello or what was it? No, 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 no. Oh, sorry. No, there's a BP put out for me. Oh, there was. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a, uh, yeah. Right. Where did that come from or where? 
<laughs> this is a funny thing. It came from my uh, my my parents and my sister. Right. Not not my ex wife. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But but so so people were looking for you. Uh, yeah. Right. One looking for me in Galway. It was just that uh, uh, the BB had put out. They, they didn't know where I was. Right. So, then, so it was just pure luck that the BB was in Galway. I, I I I never actually tried to find out, you know. But no, they were looking for me around left and right, county wide or something like that. I don't know. But it's mad, isn't it? Because like those words "lost and found," it really had a meaning that day because you were completely lost, and it took someone who knew you, who knew of you. Who, to find you and it could have been somebody else that might have mightn't have found you could have drove by said who are we looking for again or not even but I mean you were lost but someone found you so like in that moment you had another chance yeah yeah I was, I was really given another chance and I, I, I haven't spoke to him much now lately but like I thanked him so many times afterwards for what I did like and then, you know he's never asked you know all fairness like Joe Brady like he, he has been Carlos say like he fucking say he saved my life like you know I do believe he did save my life yeah uh, and you know he's never 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 looked for recognition for us or anything like that as I said he's just been a friend you're saying it now so thank you Ger Brady for doing something that you may have not realised you were doing you know yeah yeah he, he said he has just been he said I remember he said to me I'm here as your friend you know yeah. uh, and like it's just crazy and then. I'll never forget being in that hospital in, uh, in the Garda station, Mill Street, and um, like my other a couple of other friends came in and like they were in fucking bits thinking that, you know, what I was tempted to do. And then my sister came in, and then, yeah, and then my ex wife, my wife at the time came in, and yeah, and uh, yeah, it was just look at it, it's um, a very, very dark moment, you know, and 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 it's, it's a moment that I'd be straight with you. It, it, since that moment, I've always had to really, really mind my mental health, and my mental health does go up and down. Uh, I'm not like I am strong, but I do see like after this the role, um, I've suffered massively mentally because it was this you. There has been this huge sense of failure, which brings me back to you know my body failing, my business failing, my marriage failing, and the worst is that. We put it out there to the world that we were going to row across this Atlantic Ocean. Now, Damien amazingly did do that, um, but we were going to go for the world record, and I lasted thirteen and a half bloody days. Um, so I, I, I massively suffered. I, I, I'll be honest, with you, there's still, still things that I'm very easily look. I have the tools now to get myself out of it very quickly because of all that I've learned. But I still find myself hitting lows that you know. Aren't nice, <laughs> so they're, you know. But you know, the the thing is, Fergus, that I I think these are conversations we need to have, and and like even what I'm saying, I commend you for giving us details that will save someone else's life because those small little details about just the the, the path you chose that day, the things you did in the lead up to it. The, the signs other people can w- look out for. I mean, all of those are not spoken about enough because, you know, in Ireland, it's like, oh, there was a tragedy and people don't even want to say the word suicide or committed suicide. There's all these stigmas. So I think the more people know about someone's journey in those last moments, if they succeed in what they're doing or they don't, are very important to educate young people, especially. There, there are, you, it's never the end just because you're going to step over the bridge or something. There's always a way back, isn't there? There is, yeah, if you're cotton time. 
There really is. Uh, now, look, at some people say there isn't. They just want to do it, and that's it. And there is people out there like that. But there's a lot of people who, like, I, I know myself, if I, if I'm, if I say now I even go for a lunch somewhere and, you know, how all the pubs now serve lunch, or even if I had a couple of early pints, and if I see somebody, Jim, if I see somebody in a corner on his own uh, and, and not looking around and just, I, 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 I do kind of, I, I might, I, I'd actually try and say hello to them and just see what a reaction I get from them. Uh, and if, if you say, and I, I, I'm glad, I don't bother them, but some, I, no, this doesn't happen often. Like, no, no. It's not on a weekly basis or anything like that, but I'm, because I went through it myself and I do see that as a kind of a, you know, somebody who's, who's, who, who's not in a good place. Fucking like, how hard, how, how hard is it to, to say hello to Nothing them? to lose. You have nothing to lose. Look, he might say to you, what the hell do you want? All right. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not found wanting, you know? No. And you know, a word, a word can sometimes change a person's life. Like even just a hello, because you can imagine if someone is feeling alone and they have nobody and then one person goes, Hey, how are you? How's things? And you know, and they give you that, like, you know, intent of being friendly and stuff. That can just trigger something on you that goes, okay, I'm going to go home or I'm not going to do what I'm going to do. You know? Or unappreciated. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, look, it's, it's, it's a huge thing now in my life, you know, that, you know, I, I, learned, I learned a lot. And I said, um, since, as I, you know, I've, I, I, I'm not going to lie. Life has its up and downs. And, you know, you can't always be super positive, super happy and all that type of stuff. And because, as you said in their meeting, if you don't have the opposite, you don't know what the good side of it is, you know. Uh, thankfully, I had now have the tools to to understand it and to get myself back up right and and, and to plow on. But people, so a lot of people don't have those tools. So, you know, that's again why I'm very happy to do my talks and things like that to and be very open about all this stuff. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's it's just look at this people who uh, we're just very bad at talking. Simple as. Yeah, of course. And this is the thing. People just don't know how to talk about things sometimes. And can we move on then a little bit? Your journey after like all of that, you did the walk, you raised money for charity and well done for that. And but then when the next challenges came, you know, and I'm sure then obviously, you know, with Damien, you know, Damien Brown, you were saying, OK, let's go for this world record. So you probably had to start like physically training for this. And so that was a long process, too, no? Yeah, it was nearly two and a half years. So originally we were meant to go out in 2021, but COVID hit. So that gave us an extra year of training and an extra, and we had to do all our fundraising during COVID, which was absolutely torture. Uh, but yeah, like, like I, I, I actually really enjoyed the training and I actually really enjoyed COVID as well. Would you believe that? Because, um, my t- excuse me, my time in hospital um, uh, served me well for COVID. You know, I've been able to pass time and not having to, over worry about having to pass time and wanting to do with empty time and stuff like that. But also the training, like like um like I got myself so when I started, bear in mind now I took on this project and I never had rode anything before, ever. Uh I had done a, a the, the rowing machine in the gym a few times. When I took on this challenge with Damien, um I went down to the rowing machine that very day in the gym and after five minutes I was fucked. Wow. <laughs> Different story. 
Yeah. I was going, oh, my God. Of course, six, seven months later, I did seven marathons in seven days to raise money for a girl called Katie with her little leg amputated. Um, you know, so again, that the proof in the pudding is you apply yourself, you set goals, uh, and you, 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 you know, there's nothing that's not achievable if you apply yourself right and if it's what you want to do. Um, and that was what I wanted to do, and 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 and, and that was it, you know. Um, you know, so like I was in really great physical shape but out in that role, but unfortunately, there's a lot of things that did go against me, um, which shouldn't have went against me. Again, that that's life, you know. So it is. When you guys were setting up the whole thing, and you were trying to do a, get a world record, obviously, but was it something that went from? a thing between two guys two friends that then spiraled into a kind of you know people were interested in and wanted to back it and wanted to be part of it no no so so basically this was Damien baby as such this was his dream I was lucky enough to be allowed to be part of it but Damien had always had huge ambitions for this massive ambitions and if Anthony uh he was a little disappointed with the response we initially got at the beginning, you know. But we stayed plugging away, we stayed plugging away, we stayed plugging away, and it ended up being massive just before we we, we rode off from New York. And um, like to get onto primetime TV in New York a few days before we roll, like not too many Irish people can say that. You know? No, no. And uh, it was a, a surreal experience, to be honest with you, because on that given day that happened. Um, ABC News came down to report to us at, at Chelsea Harbour while we were doing the stuff with the boat and we had the chat and everything like that and I'll never forget the guy's name was Jess a lovely man and he did the interview and he just afterwards said lads you're fucking crazy <laughs> we're getting that a lot around here so we are a lot, a lot of that around here you know? he said uh, it's going to be on tonight at 9 o'clock oh, we were, oh really that quick yeah he said no 10 o'clock and 10 o'clock is the prime time in, in 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 New York, sort of. Or so okay. So this may be five, four or five o'clock in the evening. So we said, oh, we definitely get t- finished in time to go and see the interview. Literally, we were staying in uh, Lexington Avenue in the Fitzpatrick Hotel. I have to say, a big shout out for them. Sponsors, uh, uh, the sponsors the hotel rooms for the, the duration we were there. Also, a guy by the name of um, um, Johnny McCart. Um, oh, Jesus Christ. McCormick, um, Johnny McCormick, um, he he sponsored as well. Huge help to me us over there. But us, um, so literally we arrived in the door right at the hotel, and we turned right into where where, where Damien's parents were. A few other people from Ireland were there. And as we opened up the door, there we were on ABC primetime news, and they're doing the interview. And we, the two of us were just like, "God, what the hell." Oh. This is this is this is just crazy. That's surreal. Yeah, and then after that, then we had another two or three different interviews with other radio stations and TV stations, and oh man, it was just absolutely nuts. So, so yeah, it was really like there's so many things at this project. I, I you know, uh, that can never be taken away from me, uh, and and you can see I'm smiling. Yeah, yeah. Rolling around the Statue of Liberty, rolling out of out of the, out the Hudson. Uh, at night with, with, with Manhattan in the background. Uh, your first night uh, ever on a on a, a rowing boat uh, and you're rowing out from New York to try and cross over to Ireland. Like before you get on the boat to go, you know, people are you're rowing out of the harbour. 
But was it a sense of kind of euphoria or nervousness? Like, how did you feel starting off? Definitely a bit of both. I was very excited to get going, but there was definitely a nervousness because preparation wasn't great in New York. So things didn't go well. But also, I never had an opportunity to do any training on that boat that we were meant to do. So my first proper night in that boat was when we left New York. And that's something that people don't realise. Why was that? Tell us why. Well, the main reason is, um, unfortunately, like, and, and this, this like, so basically Damien moved to Australia, you know, uh, because, he, you know, his family and his kid is there. There's, there's, like, there's no issue with that at all. But because of that, then I didn't have the opportunity to go out in the boat because when he came back to Ireland to do a bit of training with me, um, the conditions weren't proper, you know. Um, but if it had been like when we took on this project, we were meant to do all the training together, we were meant to do everything together. But ultimately, we, we might have done about 10 or 15 percent of the stuff. So, and like that's fine for Damien because Damien is, is a person who does all these adventures and things like that on his own and and he loves he, he as i said himself is an insular enough type of character whereas i'm completely opposite i i'm i i i i i can't train i, I love going to the gym to be part of something part of that community i i'm no good at training here on my own it's just it's just not my makeup you know i'm a part i'm a people's person i love being around people so uh and that was the thing with Project Empower was to to do this together, which and like for me not to get to, see Damien had crossed an ocean before on his own in 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 a boat exactly very similar to the one we had. I by right I should have been doing five or six days out over the continental shelf over in Ireland to get used to living on a boat that size, but I didn't get that opportunity. Um, but that wasn't going to stop me from doing it, do you know. Um, but we'll have to say that learning along with the, the, the heat, along with the, the exhaustion, along with the lack of sleep, along with not being able to eat, it was so much. Really, it was so much. Like You could see Damien was comfortable within his environments very, very quickly. It took me a long time to get comfortable within my environments. Yeah, because, that, you know, people see it as a, just someone sitting in a boat rowing, but you're in that position all the time. You have the, you know, prevailing winds, whatever. You have all these sea conditions, the rocking of the boat, the seasickness. There's so many things you have to think about, isn't there? I'll just give you examples. Like, this sounds absolutely daft, right? Pour the simple task of pouring your hot water into your ready-made meal, your dried food. Every time you were doing that, I was virtually burning my hands because it was so tricky to hold the heart and the thing together and the boat going like this. And like, bear in mind, I don't have proprioception, so my balance is shockingly poor. So imagine you're on this small boat that's constantly moving, and moving around the boat, I always had to go around my hands and knees, you know, um, which was another bloody thing. And then, like, I, see, I, I developed massive levels of anxiety in New York as well because I was there on my own, and... During the day, I was left hanging around waiting for instructions to do things because that's how the information came to me. There was no plans, no nothing. I just had to hang around. And then I wasn't sleeping at night in New York either because of the noise of the place. And then, make matters worse, then was when the first uh, day two, uh, we had to, myself and Damien had to hook her down and go into the cabin. Now, the cabin was tiny. 
but it was also a cone shaped cabin. You know, so one end was where you got in. It was the high big big side, and then the other side then was where my my because I'm the smaller man, even though I'm six foot one and you know seventeen stone. Um, I just thought I'm the smaller man, so I was down at the top of the cone. So when I was, even though it was probably forty degrees heat, maybe more inside in this cabin, we were hunkered down because of the heat outside, even though it was stormy weather. Um, when I breathed, like less than a foot above me was the ceiling, and the hot air come down on top of me. I turned to my right; the side of the boat was right there in front of me, like literally in my face. The same thing, if I breathed there, same thing. That, and then I turned the other side and Damien's feet were there. Now, after days of rowing, yeah, my feet, but on the other side, where you get in the half, you'd have four foot above you. When you turn to one side, you'd have another four foot. When you turn to the other side, you'd have another four foot. But I was down there in that corner and I developed, I never knew I had it. I developed huge levels of, um, of claustrophobia. I had to break out of that cabin in that nine hours three times just so I could breathe. And that was dangerous. Like It was dangerous to grab, break out and go out in the cabin. I didn't care. I was getting soaked. I didn't care. I had to get out. So from that point onwards, then I had this huge level of anxiety, which I still suffer from, unfortunately. Never had it in all my life. And it's, it's quite crippling at times for me now. Um, and, uh, you know, a cabin space, like, a, oh, man, it was just, like, even think about it now, it gives me, it gives me the shits, you know. I remember even seeing the cabin and you're like, Jesus Christ, that's kind of daunting because even to be in that for an hour would seem like, let me out, it's like a dog kennel, but to be in it for all that time. Yeah, yeah, it was absolute torture. Um, yeah, something that I'll, I'll, I'll never put myself through again in terms of that type of, you know, I, I, it was just so, I never knew I had any of those, like, the anxiety thing is absolutely, I used to never believe in anxiety. I never used to believe in those words. And by Jesus, I can tell you this much now. Um, I believe in, if somebody says they're, they're suffering anxiety, I actually really feel for them because it's crippling. It's debilitating and it's, it's, it's really, really, it's a real hard one to deal with. I can imagine. So then as those 13 days were progressing and, you know, that anxiety was getting worse for you and then, but then medically wise, like, cause I, I think you developed blood clots and stuff, didn't you? So what was your body doing during the whole process? Was it getting worse or? No, see, this is the thing, right? I started, I think it was like day eight or nine, you know, I actually started getting like that. Doing tours and I was actually getting stronger and better. And like, we got into the Gulf Stream in, 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 in record time. You know, we 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 were on t- we were on on getting into the Gulf Stream. We were on time for the world record. Now the Gulf Stream moves you a lot quicker, so we're going to make more time. Um, and our weather router, who's Chris Martin, he's a world-renowned um, ocean rower and ocean row. He creates these ocean rowing events. He told us that we were rewriting ocean rowing theory. We're going so well. And that's that's all in the documentary that's coming up. We have a documentary coming out in September in RT about this project, and uh, that's all beyond that. But like we we were absolutely flying it physically. I was a hundred percent like I wasn't sore anywhere. My you know you suffer massively from um, uh, blisters and things, and that wasn't bad there neither. And hamstrings were good, shoulders were good, back was good, everything like that was perfect. But we got into the Gulf Stream, and there was a big push now. We put in a big physical effort to get to the Gulf Stream. Um, so um, got into the Gulf Stream. That's when rowing gets 
easy because the Gulfstream starts bringing you at like four or five knots without even having to row sometimes. So, uh, but I just noticed I started getting really just fatigued, not sore, just no energy. So we we're doing our two-hour shifts, two hours on, two hours off. But every time I was going on my shift, I was able to do less and less and less and less. And it came to the night, and I stopped being able to see properly because we had to look at the compass at night. That was like the manual compass. And I got to a stage where I couldn't see it at all. So to see it, I had to get off the seat, look at it, see if I was going in the right direction. So by the time I was back on my seat, set up, a wave would have come and put me off course again. So there's parts of those nights I was rowing, I was rowing very little. I mean, shockingly bad. And um, But there's parts of that night, the only way I knew I was going the wrong way was the 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 the, 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 the meter was going backwards. I was losing ground. And then I would go, oh my God, I'm going the wrong fucking way. But this is just all pure and utter exhaustion. No energy whatsoever. Not sore anywhere, nothing. So this continued on, continued on. We got to the stage where my Damien was going in for his rest. I get on my seat and all I could do maybe was four or five strokes at doors. And I'd have to lie down on the deck myself, which is an extremely uncomfortable space. And I didn't care. I just had to lie down. I had no energy. So eventually this went on and Callican um bright the next morning like it was bright around six o'clock i would have been damien shift and i just said hey damien you know the last time i felt this was when i had blood clots in the mar hospital because i got blood clots after the operations in that hospital i said I, i'm absolutely no energy nothing to me so we i did the medical uh kit for the boat so i started rooting around see was there something that could read my you know my vital signs then she got it out, and sure. And after doing that, I was fucked again. And um, I put on the the reader on my finger that reads your blood oxygen levels and a few other different readings. You know. And uh, next thing I looked at it, and I go, "Oh fuck, my blood oxygen was eighty six. Oh god, yeah, that's low. Ninety eight is good. Ninety nine is good. The blow ninety six is dangerous. So I, I gave, I showed that to Damien. I gave it to Damien then to read. To, to put on his finger to make sure that it was working properly. And uh, he put on it and he, he had 99 at that stage. And I just turned around to him and I go, I told him the story about last time I fucking low blood action level in the hospital and I had blood clots. So we're going, oh fuck, we need to ring uh, our online support, which is Chris Martin, rang him, told him the story. He got onto a marine doctor, put pencil me through to him and uh, I told him the story. And Within 30 seconds, he said, you're finished. Finished. Gone. 30 seconds. Didn't even pass well. Yeah, because... Just yeah. Uh, my blood oxygen levels were at 86%, and that's clot territory, and if you get a clot out there, you're dead. You're dead, yeah. Everything will move at a more rapid rate out there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, 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 you get a clot there, you're dead. Simple as. He said, you're finished. And that started that whole process of being rescued, uh, which is another story in itself. But, yeah, like, uh, when we heard it, like, Honest to God, the two was myself and Damien, we just started sobbing. We absolutely fucking sobbed. And what could you do? Like, you know, uh, like, like I, I put my life in hold for two and a half years for this and to do 13 days. And I mean, this since, oh, I mean, man, I, I hid away for fucking weeks and weeks and weeks when I came back from home. I just didn't want to see anybody, talk to anybody because, you know, I'd failed. Um, and it was the first time I'd failed really in any challenge I put in front of me uh, for a long time, you know. So it was extremely disappointing for me, and I, I struggled to to 
to um, I struggle to what's the word to use it? I struggle with it big time to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, to deal with it. Yeah, I really yeah. did, you know. And it is what it is, you know. You can't do much about it. But I, I just like I, I even Paul Cleary who came to pick me up off the docks in uh, New York, uh, who was really helpful to us, um, picked us up in the docks, and I remember. You know, he brought me into his apartment and then I said I'd stay in the hotel because I didn't want to interfere. But the reason I said that to him was because I just wanted to lock myself away. Yeah, you didn't want to see anybody. Yeah, and I didn't even have the energy. Even to get up out of the bed to go to the toilet was a mission. To have a shower was a mission. It was just, and eventually, eventually, it took me, I'd say it was about three months afterwards after getting off the boat. Uh, maybe not, yeah, nearly three months afterwards, I started getting my energy back. You were fatigued so much. yeah. But see, I had now again. There's no, there's no. I I had contacted COVID about ten weeks before, um, before the row. Whether that had some effect, we don't know. But you know, you hear stories about people having this long term fatigue. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. That could have had some effect in it. But we, we look again. I, I don't think so. But yeah, so but look at I. As a, there's so many good, great things. Like I'm, I'm, I'm talking negatively, and I shouldn't be because I'm always talking about being positive. No, no, but you're not. You're, you're, te- you're telling a story, and and sometimes you know those negative parts are part of the story. When, when you were airlifted onto the 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 Shenzhen or the Hafnia Shenzhen, the boat was that was that something that like they put out the call and they said, listen, in a few hours, or how quickly did that happen? So basically, when the doctor, yeah, they, the doctor and Chris Martin put, rang the coast guard from. Uh, from America. Now we're a thousand kilometers out, you know, we're on the Gulf Stream. And they said, okay, sit tight. Uh, this could take 12 hours before we get you picked up. Because what was happening at that stage is we're so far out, the Coast Guard couldn't send a helicopter out directly to us. So what they had to do was, and this is what we were being told, is that, okay, the Coast Guard are going to have to put a boat, you know, halfway out. The helicopter will land, refuel, come pick me up, go back, land, and then fly in. It's going to take about 12 hours for this operation to happen. So myself, and I said, but do not row any further because you're literally on the edges of our limits. Okay, okay, no problems. And um, so myself and Damien were like sitting back and kind of just having a chat, and, you know, you know, just general chat and trying to keep the spirits up and whatnot and, you know, think about moments we had together and stuff like that. And and then next thing out of the blue, this uh, Crush McCree, this is uh, Shafin, Hafana Shafin. We're going, what the fuck? So next week we picked up the VHF radio and we're going, um, Crush McCree, um, come in, Hafan Shafin. Uh, and I go, yes, you are a, a boat, two, two people? And we're like going, yeah. You're, you're 7.2 meters? Yeah. And you're out here in the Atlantic? Because we're going, yeah, I, you want rescue? Uh, if you're close by, yeah. We're, we're, we're 6.5 kilometers away or something like that. And then like within a half an hour, next year we would see the boat in the distance from us. And it was absolutely crazy. This 258-meter-long tanker pulling up beside the 7.2-meter boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Man, it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. Now, the waters were very calm, thankfully. But they lowered down, like the boat was so new, it was only 18 months old, right? Their, their, their ladder was automated. It came down like 
precision down onto our boat. But even though the water was so calm, there was still this boat beside this massive thing, and the water was going up and down like this. It was a very, 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 very fragile situation. Because if that ladder... Huge wake, like there's a huge wake just from it standing still. Yeah, if that if that ladder hit, us, hit, hit our um, boat, that would have crushed the boat. Right, right. Two, two of their men came down the ladder and got really close to us. And Damien was underneath me and hoisted me up. And then the two of them pulled me up the ladder. And uh, I said, the rest in. We went in and I spent... Uh, two and a half days three days nearly in that boat so it is and, um, before we go on to like what, how the kind of you're recovering the, was that a very hard moment leaving Damien on the thing yeah yeah so like they were trying to bring me into the medical room I said like no no I need to say good luck to Damien you know I can't just go like you know like this is all rushed as well you know for Damien himself because it was it was a precautious situation like he couldn't be staying right beside the boat and get something to happen but later I just remember waving over the edge to him and he waved goodbye and, and that was it um, they brought me up to the medical room and, and started giving me oxygen and you know and fresh food and the water and glucose and everything to, to get my energy levels up and yeah but that was it goodbye Damien and they brought me straight up yeah it was it was very very quick at the end at the end it was really really quick you know was it like a medical emergency then because did they say we need to get you to a hospital or how did they think you were yeah, so when I got onto the boat, you know, auction there, so they're in the medical room and they had an officer on board with medical experience and they started looking after me. They gave me oxygen and, and I said all the stuff. But um, throughout this whole process, the Coast Guard was still onto me. And I started feeling, once I got the oxygen, you know, I could, because st- my breathing was like, <sighs> like that. But once I started getting the oxygen, yeah, once I got the oxygen mask onto me, like. Kind of labored. You know, once my breathing wasn't laboured, I actually started feeling like I was still exhausted, but I just felt more comfortable, like that I wasn't going to keel over and die, basically. So um, the Coast Guard ran to me and they're like, they kept on to us. They were still in range of processing this. And they rang through and they said, okay, we can come and catch you off the watch collars, off the tanker. Now, do you want that to happen? I was here going, I was here going to the captain. How long is it into the port? And he said, I will be there two days less i said um i said to him is this a, is it a hard thing to do to to be airlifted he said it's not a simple process he said okay and i said go on. i just said okay i'm i'm very comfortable here because i'm not messing out the the crew with that ship were amazing i said i'm comfortable now here i'm not going to put this expense on anybody because i'm actually comfortable now yeah you had time yeah yeah and i had time uh, i i i knew i felt i was going to like keel over there and then on us and uh so i called it off uh but i had to call it off nobody else could call it off i had to christ christ the rang and said we need you to call it off if you want to call it off i said i am calling it off and then about two hours later they rang me again and said we're ready to go on your call we can go you know a pure american thing you know all matter of fact and we're ready to go we're, in, we're ready to go and hope we're ready and loaded i said no i am good and that was it then, that was it. And uh, then, uh, yeah, and then, uh, but the crew with that boat were absolutely amazing. Um, the captain was Sanjay, uh, absolutely lovely, lovely man. And uh, the, the next in line was uh, Cliff, two absolutely gentlemen. And the crew were just so inquisitive. They, they couldn't get over two Irish gobshites trying to roll across the Atlantic Ocean, you know? It was absolutely crazy. They were like, what the fuck are you doing out here? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And even that experience of you arriving into, I think it was New York Harbor, you arrived into with the tanker, no? Yeah, it was, yeah. That was crazy. It was absolutely amazing. Like, you know, when I look back, like, you know, like I, in these uh, few months, like, I, I did a lot of stuff that people never, ever dream about, you know? <laughs> and stuff, stuff you weren't even planning on doing, like... Yeah, you, that is for sure. Yeah, you probably, you were thinking, we're going to row across the Atlantic, but you didn't think you'd be on a tanker. <laughs> No, that is for sure. Man, like, you know, it's... <laughs> so then after all of that, you know, you, you, you said there where you felt kind of like you were disappointed and you felt a bit of a failure because of what went down and everything. You know, seeing that, that idea of negativity for you was somewhere you don't want to go. How did you step out of that? Like, when was the, after how many months or weeks did you say, I have to stop this you know, self-pity and so on? How did you do that? I was still suffering up until after Christmas. So I was because Damien arrived in October, refreshed it all for me and stuff like that, you know. So I was still suffering from my from Christmas. And unfortunately, my partner uh, was getting, you know, the, the blunt, the, the, the bad side of it as well, you know, because it's been very sharp and negative, um, which was horrible, you know. But it would only happen when I'd be under stressful situations, you know, and I couldn't understand it. So I'd be, I'd be straight that I actually went and sought help because I was doing things that was completely out of character for me uh, when I was under stress. Uh, even when even before my other accident, I would never have done these type of things. So I had to go and, uh, and I was doing other things that were totally out of character. Now, uh, you know, so I actually went to uh, help because uh, the relationship I was in meant too much to me and, and, and it was affecting other things. So I went and got my help and I actually still getting that help because um, so... They believe that um, that uh, the failure of the role and everything else that went with it has brought on post-traumatic stress from my accident. And there's a load of other things that are going on with that sense of failure. So, again, remember the time I had my accident, I had a sense of failure about my bow, about my body, financial, marriage and all that. And what's happened with the, the sense of failure from not coming, up, coming off the boat has reunited all that stuff with inside me and yeah, so that's what I'm saying is like, you know, this bloody mind is a tricky, tricky baby. Oh, yeah, of course. And and, and that that's where I am now. Right? Uh, but I'm going, I'm working through it and it's actually really working out really well because I'm, I'm finding out more things about myself that has me amazed and uh, and, I, and I'm, I'm learning more about myself, which is actually helping me even more, which is, is, is a great thing. About it. But yeah, so that's how I'm dealing with it. And the good thing about that is now, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, you love doing the talks and giving back to people. Every day you learn more about yourself is something else you can give to somebody else. Yeah, that's for sure. Like, you know, um, as I said, like, we're complicated things, you know, we are complicated human beings. And sometimes um, it's crazy, something that we could have done 10 years ago affects us to this day and we don't realize it. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, and uh, if I, I'm smiling now because like, I, I'm talking here to you about, you know, well, I suppose talking here about, you know, about my journey and whatever else and about what I've learned about my mind and all that. But it's, you know, something tomorrow I'm going to learn something probably new as well. Of course. I mean, that that's the whole process, isn't it? That's the, the thing that w- when we think we have a, a cup full, there's a little bit more you can put in and... Yeah. I mean, the great thing is you've had such a, an amazing journey and excuse the pun again, we've lots of puns here, but you're, you're learning still as you go along and you don't have to be on a boat 
but you don't have to be climbing a mountain to have an amazing journey. And the great thing is there are people you will talk to that might never get those opportunities, but they'll have their own journey and their own struggles. And maybe the words or the actions you've done can help them as well. So that's a really good thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, look at what one guy's Everest is another guy's, you know, you know, we're all so different and we all deem challenge, like challenges can be anything. They can be physical, emotional, spiritual, uh, healing. There could be anything. It doesn't have to be. Everybody seems to think when somebody says a challenge, it has to be a physical challenge. Bullshit. It could be anything. You know, just just but just accept it and try and try and um, you know try and try. I suppose conquer your challenge, and I think that will help a lot of people in life. You know, but again, as I said to you, like um, what works for me doesn't mean it works for the next person. Of course, and you know. To finish off then, like, have you have you challenges in store for yourself over the next year or so? Yeah, so I actually do when I'm reading. The next chapter is probably my chat. You know, the last two and a half years is about approaching power and about myself and Damien. But the next chapter is about myself and my my journey. So um, I'm I, obviously I'm, I'm still a, a disabled person. So I'm, I'm I'm actually trying to make the Paralympics for 2000 and for next year 2024. It's a really long, long, long shot, so it is. Uh, but I'm going to try, uh, and I'm going for that. So that's number one. Number two is also um, I, I'm a firm believer in um, sports for disabled people, um, and there's one section that. Um, it's very poorly served in Ireland, and that's wheelchair rugby. Now, we have a huge history of rugby in Ireland, and it's under an umbrella at the moment that I believe isn't isn't fit for purpose. And I'm trying to get wheelchair rugby put underneath the representative rub- board for rugby in Ireland, and that's the RFU. So I'm trying to um, create, like, there's, only, there's one wheelchair rugby team in Ireland in Dublin. And when there's only one team and only a few players playing for it, how the hell are they meant to get better? Yeah, of course, of course. And they're they're and they can go to the Paralympics, by the way, this team. But as I've been told, they're so poor they don't know anything they want to send them. But what my my goal, my ambition, might be for this World Cup, uh, or for this Paralympics, but definitely be for the next one is to create four provincial rugby, Connacht, Leinster, Ulster, and Munster wheelchair rugby teams. Like to have sevens, like to have uh, Connacht juniors, like to have all that type of stuff. Four people with disabilities one in each province and then to create that and so that's my that's 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 my goal to 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 do something like that to create something that's going to be long lasting because it's just not right for people who love rugby and who have a disability and have no outlet like we're all about social inclusion and all that type of stuff well stop talking about it and put it into action yeah if you see for example in other countries, the way they can do the wheelchair basketball and the way they can make it work, why shouldn't it be the same for rugby? I mean, of course, it's a, it's a slightly different game, but look at how tag rugby has evolved. So why can't wheelchair rugby? Exactly. Look, obviously, you have less 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 people who 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 can who who are uh, who are suitable to play it. But like, I'm on my feet. I'm allowed to play wheelchair rugby. Okay. Okay. That's that's crazy, like you know. That's yeah, that's yeah, that that's the thing, isn't it? Because it's kind of like it's like you know when um, Shaquille O'Neal said he was in the lift with Stevie Wonder, and he said he saw Stevie Wonder pressing the seven button or whatever. And he said this motherfucker not blind at all, you know. 
And uh, it's kind of like they'll see you in the wheelchair getting up and saying, great game, lads. And they're like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that's it. Like, you know, as in, but see this, see people out there, like, like the thing is, right, think about it. Like rugby actually has, uh, is a sport that, you know, um, bad accidents can happen and tourism, you know, you can get paralyzed from it. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm at this moment in time, there is wheelchair rugby, but it's underneath the wrong umbrella with no desire to promote it. No desire. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but that is degrading to disabled people. No, and that's great. And I think, I, I think that's brilliant. And all the best with that, because I, th- I think it's something that's very achievable. And I think you're the perfect man to do it. And that's that's why I'm doing it, because I, I believe I can I can open doors. I can put it together and I can drive it on because... Again, I was in that position. I played wheelchair rugby. I absolutely loved it. It was a brilliant sport. I swear to God, I played, I played wheelchair basketball. Another brilliant sport. I mean, wheelchair basketball is better than basketball. <laughs> I swear to God. Yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable. It's class. You know, and wheelchair rugby is... is but that's good. And, and I mean, I can see that, you know, when you talk about things being very difficult or hard, but like that shouldn't be that difficult. For them to put it under the right umbrella, you know? Politics and the want. Politics, isn't it? Want is a big thing. And, and that's where I'm going to try and change that. Now, I have to say, I've had talks with people in the IRFU. Every one of them are very much for it. It's just trying to get the right people, talk to the right people, and decisions being made and made quickly. Right, right. That's my next chapter in my life. Is But, but that's great. I mean, there's a lot of challenges there and best look of in all of them. To finish off, can you give a message to people who are in similar situations that you've been in or, you know, are finding themselves lost and, as you said, not looking at it negatively? Can you, what, what would you say to those people? The biggest thing that you can do is help yourself, okay? If you can have that desire to help yourself, there's plenty of people out there who will help you once you have that desire. Do not think you can just sit there lie there and do nothing and expect people to do it for you it just won't happen and when you do it yourself the pride and the happiness that will bring to you will pay it back many 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 times and that happiness and pride will keep you very very happy and keep you mentally very very strong when you need it so just guys just do it for yourself yourself i'm 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 an advocate for these words every day is a day for you to improve fergus thank you very much and you know you've had an amazing story an amazing life so far and you know it's going to even get better now with all these amazing challenges you have ahead of you and thanks for taking the time to come on our show and and to share this with me and to share with everybody else and all we want to say is well done and best of luck with everything in the future thanks me and simon i really loved having a chat with you it was really 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 good Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Fergus Farrell. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Fergus Farrell. It was wonderful talking to you and really insightful. Such an amazing journey. And you're still on that journey, but you've accomplished so much. We want to thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing these things with us. And thank you once again from the bottom of our heart, Mr. Fergus Farrell. Okay, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that. Fergus's story is a testament to the strength of the human spirit. He's reminding us that no matter how challenging life may become, there is always hope and the possibility for extraordinary transformation. His journey serves as an inspiration to us all, demonstrating that with determination, support, and an unwavering belief in yourself or oneself, even the most daunting obstacles can be overcome. And to you, the listeners at home, as I have mentioned before, please follow, share, subscribe, 
do everything you can to push this boat along. And we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. My name is Simon Kay. This is the Collective Whisper podcast. Until the next time, take care of yourself, your family, and the ones you love. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.